The following audio is from Story City Church in Burbank, California. For more information on Story City, go to storycitychurch.com. Father, I, uh, I thank you that your word is truth and that every time we open it, we're hearing truth from you. Um, I thank you for your love for me and for every soul in this room, your love for Story City Church and the work you're doing. I just pray that you would help us now to come underneath your word and listen, to open our hearts, to open our ears, to open our minds. I pray you'd be with me, set a guard over my words, that your Holy Spirit might speak to us. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Um, If you've been here the last few weeks, you've heard. Um, If you haven't, I will bring you up to speed. But we're in an exciting season as a church right now. God is doing a lot, and he's done a lot. Uh, To rewind the tape, Matt and myself moved here with our lovely wives and our kids, literally by ourselves four and a half years ago to Burbank. We had no clue what we were up against. We had no clue what we were doing. It was literally eight people starting this church. And at that point, we literally had no allies other than a calling from God to plant this church um, and great provision from God through external churches that were supporting us financially and through prayer. Fast forward the tape to today, four and a half years later, you're seeing now the fruit of what God has done. We have a church of several hundred um, meeting weekly. Uh, People are being counseled. Marriages are being counseled and healed. Discipleship is happening. We're living on mission, engaging our community with the gospel. Uh, We're seeing darkness being pushed back by the little group of people gathered here in the Colony Theater on Sundays week after week. And I don't say any of that to to point to our church or to myself or to Pastor Matt or any of you and say, glory to us, look what we've done. Quite the opposite, actually. I say it to say, look what God has done, because if anything, we've been radically protected, radically provided for, and God has just led every step of the way in his sovereignty and through his provision. And so we give God the glory for what's happening in this church. And if you call Story City Church home, if this is where you've put down roots, if you've been coming recently, I think you've probably picked up on a theme the last several weeks to month that we've been preaching with all that God is doing, because we're actually... God has provided for a second church campus to be launched in Granada Hills in the coming months. He's provided awesome, he's doing awesome things. And so what we've been preaching on lately, this thread keeps uh, revealing itself and we take church seriously here. Like we're not messing around. We're not, uh, we're not playing church here. We're serious about what we're doing. We wanna see God do miraculous things. We wanna see darkness being pushed back. And we believe that church only really works the way it's supposed to work when everybody who calls this church home is actively engaged and lives in a way that says to the watching world, Christ is not an accessory in my life, but he is the center from which my life radiates out. And I'm not as serious about anything as I am serious about living to know and glorify and make Christ known. That's when the church starts looking dangerous to the darkness. When the church unites and says, Christ is not something I keep in my back pocket or a Sunday activity, but he has radically revolutionized the purpose and trajectory and reason I breathe oxygen. It is to know and make him known. He has become my joy, my purpose, my everything. That is when darkness gets scared. And we've seen some of that start happening here in this church. And so I say all that to start to say this, when that kind of thing starts happening, we should start expecting opposition. When that kind of thing starts happening in a church, the darkness takes notice. Opposition starts coming. 
if we are going to be and become more and more a church that takes Christ seriously, that lives on mission, that makes disciples, that longs to know Jesus, that walks together in forgiveness and love and mercy, we can start to expect opposition in our church. We should expect it. We should be ready for it when it comes. I've seen uh, over the last four and a half years since I've lived here, I was about, what was I, 30 when I moved here? I'm 35 now. Um, I've seen a lot of opposition in my own life over the last four and a half years as I've given myself to the best of my ability by the grace of God to plant Story City along with so many wonderful people. I've seen a lot of opposition in my life. I've seen, um, I've seen the enemy attack. I've seen the attack of my flesh. I've seen temptation. I've seen uh, sickness. I've seen um, relational strain and discord. In fact, I'd say through every season, we've been through a lot of seasons as a church up to this point, but I'd say through every season, there's been two constants from my view. And one is the radical faithfulness of God in every season I've walked through. I have seen God faithful. I have seen him prove it time and time again that he's faithful, that he's able, that he's with us, that he's the one building his church, that he's the reason the gates of hell will not stand against what we're doing here at Story City. But I've also seen opposition to that work to God's faithfulness. To, I've seen it over and over and over again. And I share my own struggles. I've struggled with depression. I've struggled with anxiety. I've struggled with fear. I've struggled with sickness. I share all that to say this. You, you might hear that and go, well, pastor, like pastors aren't supposed to tell people they struggle with depression. Like that's a little too real this morning. But I wanna say, I do that intentionally. I want you to hear from me that I'm with you. I struggle with you. I'm a fellow sinner in need of Jesus's grace and I'm here pushing into him and I want you to do it with me. Like, I don't have all the answers. Pastor Matt doesn't have all the answers. We are here as blind men showing blind men where food is. We found food. His name is Jesus Christ. And we wanna point you to him and say, he's the one that leads us. He's the one with the answers. We look to him. We look to his word. And opposition in the Christian life comes in all kinds of forms. It can come in so many forms. It comes in temptations, habits and addictions and sins that we just can't break, patterns in our life that keep getting stirred up and we just can't break them. It comes in spoiled relationships, heartache and loneliness. Some of you in this room are so lonely. And it's, it's just opposition to your growth and joy in Jesus this morning. And you fight against it and you're constantly brushing up against loneliness. It comes in the form of financial stress and strain. You just can't get out ahead and you're constantly walking under the weight of financial strain and you just can't get ahead of it. And it's robbing you of joy and it's robbing you of peace and you're trying to push and it just feels like oppression. It can come in the form of cultural chaos and discord. We live in a world that seems to be increasingly divided. Maybe that's a weight on you this morning. It can even come down to the simple things, like every time you merge onto the 405 freeway and get stuck in traffic and say under your breath, not today, Satan. <laughs> right? Like we just face it in this city. We live and we face opposition. We face attack. And so my desire this morning as a young, growing church my one desire in preaching this message that's honestly a little heavy is that as a church and as people, as Christians, we would be prepared for this inevitable opposition, that it wouldn't catch us off guard when it comes, that we would learn and know how to identify the schemes and attacks of the enemy and how to push into Jesus together so that when they come, we aren't caught off guard and knocked over. Because the reality this morning is that we have an enemy. We have an enemy. 
And that enemy hates our church. He hates our faith. He hates our families. He hates the truth of Jesus. He hates what's happening right now in this room as the word of God is opened and the praises of God on high are sung. He hates it and he wants to stop it. And as I studied this morning to preach on this kind of topic of spiritual warfare, it became clear to me that the Lord had more for us because um, I think so often we want to overemphasize spiritual attack as all coming from demonic forces from Satan. But the reality is there are multiple places where attack come into our lives. Sometimes we do a lot of the heavy lifting for the enemy. We have, the, biblically, there are three categories of where opposition comes into our lives. And it's called the world, the flesh, and the devil. The world, the flesh, and the devil. There are three places where attack can come in. And so I wanna try to do this this morning. I wanna try to lay a nuanced foundation biblically so that we can look into our own lives, into the places where we're feeling opposition, the places where we're feeling attack, and we can get down to the root of where that is coming from. What is the source of the opposition in my life? Is it coming from the world I live in and just the reality of a fallen world and these, the thoughts of the culture around me that, have, that preach at me constantly? Is it coming from my flesh, this inner turmoil, that, this desire that's just been in me since birth for things other than God? Am I in my own way? Or is it coming very really and practically from an outernal, external enemy. But here's the real, here's the reality. The enemy is active and his demonic forces are often active and they use the world and the flesh. They play on our pre-existing weaknesses. And so often when the flesh is attacking, when the world is attacking, there's an enemy standing behind those things using them. And so I want us to feel a healthy weight this morning as we look at these things. I think there's a healthy kind of weight to recognize. There's a reason the Bible says stand firm. There's a reason the Bible says resist. There's a reason the Bible says be sober. We need to be feeling a healthy weight of what we're up against. But I also want us to recognize that the answer this morning is leaning into and looking to Jesus Christ alone as the author and perfecter of our faith, the one who defeats these enemies and pushing into him. So we don't fight actively necessarily against the enemies. We fight to lean into Jesus who fights the enemies on our behalf. So that's what I wanna to get to this morning. So if you have your Bibles, Ephesians 2 is where we'll be rooted. We're gonna bounce around a lot this morning. I'm gonna try to move quickly because we're taking communion at the end of the service. So I wanna make time, but Ephesians 2, verses one through three. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us, also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. Pause there. A few things I want us to see. The reason I wanted to root us in this text this morning is because this is a very uh, concise text that gives us all three of these enemies in one short paragraph. We see the world, we see the flesh, and we see the devil. Paul lists them all here. But also, this is right, this is right before Paul goes on this incredibly famous, beautiful epilogue about the grace and mercy we have in Jesus Christ, about us being saved by faith and by grace and no works of our own through the righteousness of Christ on our behalf, this beautiful freeing. But I mean, we read this text this morning and it's heavy. We're talking about wrath. We're talking about the world. We're talking about enemies. And this is why we have to lay this foundation to get to the good news. 
To get to the good news, we have to, and really appreciate it for what it is, we have to go through, where do we come from? What has God saved us from? And the reality is he's pulled us from an incredible depth, from the world, from our flesh, from the devil. He's defeated them and he's pulled us through the gift of his life into salvation by faith alone. And so I wanna look at these three enemies in this text. First, the world. The world and how it attacks us. Verse two says, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world. This world. The world here, and often in the New Testament, does not refer to a geographical location, to our planet that we stand on. It can be defined more accurately as fortified cultural ways of thinking and living that oppose the Lord. The world here refers to a way of thought. It refers to fortified, established strongholds in our culture that stand in direct opposition to God and to his way of living and his way of thinking. 1 John 2, 15 through 17 says this. 1 John 2, 15 through 17. Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. So here, John gives us a picture of the world. He says, everything in the world can be summed up in these three things. How does the world think? What are the ways of the world, the way the world thinks that we're supposed to not give ourselves to, that we need to be on guard against? He sums it up in three things, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. You know, Satan knows that these are kind of the ethos and MO of our world that we live in, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. He actually used these exact things to tempt Jesus in the wilderness when he tried to derail his ministry in Matthew chapter four. There's a time right after Jesus's baptism where he's led by the Holy Spirit into the desert to be tempted by Satan himself. And how does Satan attack Jesus the same way he attacks us today? with these three temptations of the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the lust of the world. It's up on the screen. The lust of the flesh is the desire for pleasure, comfort, and satisfaction. It's this thing in us that just needs pleasure, needs comfort, will do anything and move any mountain to get to it. Give me what I want and give it to me now. That's the lust of the flesh. I need what I need and get me to it. Satan tempted Jesus with this in Matthew chapter four when he took Jesus and he said, you see those stones, turn them into bread and meet your appetite. Fill your appetite with this bread. Jesus, you're God, you can do it. Fulfill your own pleasure. And Jesus quotes scripture back in Satan and says, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that flows from the mouth of God. He says, I have an appetite for something greater. The lust of the eyes is the desire for riches, accumulating possessions. We see this all over the city we live in. It's the belief that more stuff will make us happy. And this need, this incessant need for more, to build wealth, to have more, to establish ourselves securely, to establish ourselves with significance. And Satan tempted Jesus in Matthew chapter four with this very thing when he took him to the heights and he had him look over the world. And he said, all the kingdoms, I will give them to you if you simply bow your knee and worship me. He tempted him with this idol of significance, with this idol of accumulating power. And again, Jesus quotes scripture back at him and says, you shall worship the Lord your God only. And then the pride of life, just a simple desire within all of us to be great, to have status in this world, to 
be self-sufficient, just be enough and not need anyone or anything to be a self-made human. That's the pride of life. And Satan tempted Jesus with this in Matthew chapter four, when he took him to a high place and said, hey, you're Jesus, right? God has written that he'll save you if you throw yourself. So Satan says, jump off this building and prove who you are because God will send angels to save you. Prove your status, prove who you are, establish your identity. He was tempting him with the pride of life. And it's the same way he still tempts us today. I don't think I need to belabor this point too much. You live in Los Angeles with me. You experience the way every time you walk out of your door, merge on the freeway and pass the billboards, wait in line at the grocery store, log onto Facebook and see the ads, log into Twitter and see the tweets, whatever it is, everywhere our culture is constantly sermonizing us. Don't think that you live in a passive world that is not discipling you. Our culture is discipling us every moment of every day. And the current of our culture runs away from the cross. The current of our culture carries us farther and farther from Jesus. It denounces the truths of scripture that say that Jesus is enough. It tries to sow in us discontentment and disbelief that God is good and that he can actually satisfy the deepest longings of our heart. It tries to sow doubt that God is real. It preaches the reality of the temporal. It turns the volume down to zero on the sacred and the holy and the eternal, and it cranks it up to 10 on the temporal, on temporal satisfaction. What does John say in his text? He says, the world and its desires are passing away. Here's what God would want us to see. You could accumulate everything this world has to offer. You could become the most secure and significant human being on the world. And there's a guaranteed expiration date on everything you have. The world and its desires are passing away. They are fading. You will not get to keep what you have. The reality of death awaits us all and no hearse pulls a U-Haul. You go into heaven empty-handed. You leave this life the way you came. The world and its desires are fading away. And only God can establish and satisfy our deepest longings. So let's make no mistake, church. If we are not actively fighting to be discipled by Jesus Christ through his word, we are actively being discipled by a culture that is telling us that Christ is not enough, that he's not good, and that you need other things to fulfill you and make you happy. That's just the reality. And many faithful Christians have been caught up, caught off guard, and ultimately sometimes derailed in their faith by love for the world. In 2 Timothy 4.10, the apostle Paul laments the loss of a friend named Demas. And he says, Demas, because he loved this world has deserted me. A guy that went on mission with Paul, fooled by the desires of this world. That's why in Romans 12, 2, Paul writes, don't conform to the pattern of this world or this age, this pattern of thinking that says that Christ isn't enough and that this world can satisfy, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. If we are going to grow into all God has for us, if we're going to be stable and sustainable in our faith, we are going to disciple our own, own hearts to remember daily the goodness and beauty of Jesus Christ above all things through his word. John 17, 17 says that Jesus, that we're sanctified by the word of God and that his word is truth. And so either we are sanctified by the word or we are destroyed by the world. And so I want us to hear this. I wanna hear how the world works, how, what it preaches on, what it harps on, so that we can be aware. Where is the temptation? Where are the things that are trying to derail me and my faith coming from? Is it the world? Secondly, let's look at the flesh. 
The flesh is the second spiritual enemy that opposes us. In verse three of our text today, Paul writes, all of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. The flesh here does not refer to skin and bones, my pale flesh up here this morning looking very white in the light. The flesh is simply our sinful human nature. To be human is to be born with a sin nature. This may seem harsh this morning, but I share this. I'm trying to love us. I'm trying to point us to what God's word says. Listen to me. We don't become sinful because we sin. We sin because we are born sinful. It is our nature. It is who we are. David wrote in Psalm 51.5, Surely I was sinful at my birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. The Bible paints a picture that would tell us sin is a nature we are all born with. And the parents in this room are saying amen. Uh, I have, I'm gonna seem braggy right now, but uh, I have two beautiful little girls, a two and a half year old and a girl that, baby girl named Gracelyn that turns five today. And uh, happy birthday, Gracelyn, I love you. Um, if you happen to be downloading the podcast. And uh, <laughs> she's not that far off. Um, and... Uh, I'm sorry, I've derailed myself here. <laughs> My kids, uh, I've had to teach them everything. Like legitimately, there's nothing that you don't have to teach your kids as a parent. I've, I've had to teach my kids how to eat. I've had to teach them how to use the restroom. I'm having to teach them how to dress. Like kids can do nothing without being taught, but there's one thing I have not had to teach my kids how to do, sin. I mean, I don't wanna seem braggy and I know I am, but my kids are savants at sin. Like they have a gift, whether it's pushing or hitting or lying or screaming or putting themselves first above all things irrationally or eating too much chocolate, whatever it is, they have no issue sinning. They have been born gifted and skilled at it. And here's the reality. I like to think, um, I like to think as a 35-year-old man who's become a pastor and, and, uh, and, and a shepherd and that I've gotten better at sinning, like that I'm not as bad as my kids are and what I see in them. But here's the reality. I've, I haven't. I've just, my nature's the same. I've just gotten a little more uh, sophisticated in how I represent myself. I, I know now not to hit people and I know not to scream when I don't get what I want because that doesn't go well for you in life. I figured that out by 35. My kids haven't. Here's the reality. Your sin nature never changes. It's who we are. It's built in. Uh, just yesterday, we were throwing my daughter a birthday party, and I was setting up. We have one of these makeshift tents, uh, like an awning that you have to put up, like people use at the beach and stuff, and I hate this thing. It's so hard to set up, and I'm, I'm trying to set it up, and my lovely wife comes and tries to help me. Just, she's trying to move it, and I, she says, how can I help you? And I just snapped at her out. You can leave me alone. <laughs> the, that came from the place of me being very mad at the tent that it was not setting itself up. But in my sin nature, I wasn't getting what I wanted. The tense wasn't co cooperating. And what do I do? I lash out at my wife. See, I'm a sinner in need of grace, like I've shared this morning. <laughs> Romans, five, or Romans 8, 5 through 8, Paul writes this. Those who live according to the sinful nature have their minds set on what that nature desires. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. The mind of sinful man is death, but the mind of the Spirit is life and peace. The sinful mind is hostile to God, 
does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those controlled by the sinful nature cannot please God. So what we see here is that until God miraculously saves us by his Holy Spirit and gives us a new nature that loves him, we are not passive to God. We are actively opposed in our nature to God until God gives us a new nature. That's why in John 3, 3, when Jesus meets with a religious man named Nicodemus, he says, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. This is what we mean when we say the common phrase in Christianity, he's a born again believer. It means you've been given a new nature. That old nature that was opposed to God has been miraculously intercepted by a new nature given through the birth in the Holy Spirit that makes you love God and desire to please him. It's a second birth. Every Christian believer has had this. It's the, it's the place of receiving a new nature. It's every bit as real as our first birth. This is the good news of how the gospel works. When we come by faith to God and acknowledge I'm born with a sin nature and I can't change it in and of myself. I need a savior. I need help. I need you to transform me. We come to God by faith and this miraculous thing happens where God, through the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross, imputes his righteousness to me, sees me with the favor that he sees Jesus with, forgives every single one of my sins, first to last, robes me in the righteousness of Christ, invites me into his family, and then gives me through the Holy Spirit a new nature to love and live in obedience to his word and to repent when I fail as I recognize my need to make war on my old nature through the new nature Jesus Christ has given me. This is the miracle of Christianity. Ezekiel 36, 26 writes, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. So this begs a question, because if you're anything like me, you'll be asking this as you hear this. If I have a new nature miraculously given through the Holy Spirit, why do I still struggle so much with my sin? Like, shouldn't I just have it nailed by now? Maybe it's just me. Well, as Christians, when we are born again, now hear me, this is important. We are freed from the power of sin through the inner working of the Holy Spirit, but we are not yet freed from the presence of sin. See, we live in the already not yet, as theologians call it. Christ has come, he's conquered death, he's conquered Satan, he's conquered all of our foes, he's ascended, he's sitting at the right hand of the Father on high with his job done. And yet we await his return when he makes an end to sin once and for all, when he makes an end to Satan once and for all. And so we live in the in-between, in the already not yet, where the power of sin is broken in the life of a believer, but its presence remains. What this means is we're given a nature that desires to make war on sin. The spirit makes war on the flesh, but flesh remains. See, before you came to Christ by faith, it was peacetime in your soul. And what I mean by that is this. There was no rivalry for the throne of your heart. Flesh had it. And there was no rival. Flesh was king. What flesh wanted, flesh got. Sin reigned. That's what Paul's saying here in Ephesians chapter two. But then when through faith you come to Christ, you're given a new nature and suddenly there's an inner conflict. So you've been given a new nature, the Holy Spirit who makes war on your sin. And so there's an inner turmoil suddenly. This is who I was, but this is who I am. And the flesh pulls on you. It says, this is who you are, live this way. And the spirit fights back and it says, no, that's not who you are. Christ has claimed you, he's redeemed you. He's made you a new person. Now live in obedience to my spirit. And so to live the Christian life is to live this life of tension where we make war on the flesh. And we have suddenly, and this is where the power is broken. We have now the ability to say, that's not who I am anymore. Sin. 
I'm an adopted blood-bought child of God. So I have now the ability and the power through the Holy Spirit to say no to sin. I did not have that ability before Christ. I had no reason to fight back. Flesh won. Now through Christ, I have a desire and a power through the Holy Spirit to fight back, to push back against my sin. The other thing that happens in the life of a believer when they get this new nature is they can't sin happily anymore. Before Christ, when I sinned, I had no second thought about it. I got what I wanted, good, how can I get more of it? Now when I sin, all of a sudden there's this unwanted consequence of conviction. Oh, that's not the way I'm meant to live anymore. Oh, Holy Spirit, just leave me alone here. Let me get what I want out of this. But no, he keeps pushing in. He says, that's not who you are anymore. And conviction comes. A born-again believer cannot sin happily. They will be pulled back to repentance time and time again. And so analyze your life. How is the flesh encroaching on your growth in Jesus? How are you doing at pushing into the gospel of Christ that would tell you that you're saved and redeemed? Thirdly, let's get to the fun one, the devil. The accuser of the saints. We see him in our text today here where it says that we followed the ways of the world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. The kingdom of the air refers to the spiritual realm in scripture. It's a realm inhabited by angels and demons. So the ruler of the kingdom of the air is Satan himself. We, f- we meet Satan for the first time in scripture in Ezekiel 28 verses 11 through 19, where we see him as an angel who fell, who rebelled against God's sovereignty. He was a glorious angel in Ezekiel 28, 11 through 19. Perhaps the most glorious angel, but he rebelled. Pride was his downfall and he took one third of the host of heaven and the angels with him who became demons. The word Satan or Diablos from which we derive the English word devil literally means slanderer or accuser. That's how Satan opposes us this morning, church. He's a slanderer. He lies and he accuses. John 8, 44 says that when Satan speaks, he speaks his native tongue and his native tongue is lies. He hates the church. He hates this church. He hates our marriages. His desire is to steal, kill, and destroy us. And as fierce of an enemy as Satan is, which the Bible describes him in 1 Peter 5, 9 as a lion seeking to devour, God's word tells us that because Christ has defeated him at the cross, we can resist and stand against his schemes. James 4, 7 and 1 Peter 5 tell us to resist the devil. Look with me at Ephesians 6, 10, just a page over from where we are. Ephesians 6, 10, Paul writes this. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. Notice here what Paul tells us we fight against. The devil's schemes. The devil's schemes. The Greek word there is methodius or methods. Get this, your slanderer, your accuser, the enemy of the church and the enemy of every Christian, he has methods. He has books written about how to tempt and accuse every generation, every tribe, every type of person, every disposition and personality. And here's how he works this. All of his schemes are tailor-made for you. They are tailor-made for you. And here's the other thing about him. They are subtle. See, so often we get the idea of our accuser that he's gonna come if he ever came, if we ever did encounter him, that he would come wearing a red leotard with horns and a pitchfork prancing in. I'm here to get you now, Christian. Satan is not overt like that. 
Satan is subtle and crafty. In Genesis 3.1, when we meet the serpent tempting, we're told that he's the craftiest of all the animals, meaning this, he's subtle. He conceals his poison in delicious wine. Likely you will not even know that he's after you. But the one tool that Satan uses with great precision is lying. He is a liar. And his lies take one of two forms in the Christian life. Temptation and accusation. In temptation, when he tempts us, Satan plays up God's love and his mercy and he hides his holiness. He wants to inflate our view of self, inflate our view of our strength. In accusation, when he wants to lower our view of self and keep us in the chains of self-loathing, he plays up God's holiness and his justice and he hides from you God's incredible love and mercy for us through Christ. Thomas Brooks, the Puritan author, wrote a fantastic little book, which I highly commend to you this morning, called Precious Remedies for Satan's Devices. In this book, he lists a bunch of ways that Satan tempts and accuses believers, and then he gives us remedies for how to fight and and stir up our souls to fight against them. I wanna read a few of them this morning and see if you might recognize a few of these in your own life. Here's a few temptations Thomas Brooks lists in the precious remedies for Satan's devices. I'm gonna, go, I'm gonna divide them into characters. First, I'm gonna do temptations, then I'm gonna do accusations. In temptation, one way he says is that he shows you the bait and he hides the hook. Meaning this, he gets you to look at the short-term pleasure of sin. He enlarges the view of that short-term pleasure and he hides from view the long road of devastation that will come and suffering that will come from sin. He shows you the bait and he hides the hook. Another way, by getting you to rationalize sin as virtue, by getting us to rationalize our sin as virtue, this is how that works. So he gets you to say to yourself, I'm, I'm actually not greedy. I'm just frugal. I'm not a gossip. I just care a lot. I'm just concerned. I'm not an alcoholic. I'm just social, (laughs) right? He gets you to play up these things and deny the reality of your sin and justify it as virtue. Another way, by showing you the sins of Christian leaders. So you say in your heart, well, I, I may do this, but I saw so-and-so who I heard preaching last week doing it. And so you compare yourself not to the holy standard of Christ, but to the standards of other men and women around you and you excuse your sin. Another one, by making them bitter over suffering. So you say, my life's hard. I had a hard week, I had a long day. I deserve this. It's just a little. And you plunge yourself into sin that leads to suffering by showing Christians how many bad people seem to have great lives. So you say, God, is it really worth it? It must not be worth it to really fight to know Jesus. One more, by getting you to compare one part of your life to another. So you say, yeah, I struggle with this, but I'm really good at this. I'm good over here, so don't think about this as much, think about this. A really extreme example of this is, is the mafia, right? Like, yeah, sure, I murder people, but I'm really good to my mother. I mean, that sounds extreme, but that's the reality of how they think. Let's, let's look at some ways the enemy might be accusing you this morning, trying to get you to doubt your position and status in Christ and keep you bound in the chains of shame. One, by causing us to look more at our sin than our savior. 
You know, if you read any good sociologist in any good parenting book will tell you that for every one compliment a child receives when they're being raised, they need multiple, multiple. For every one um, criticism, they need multiple compliments. And here's why, because criticism is lodged in our kids' hearts. And so for every one time we criticize our kids, we need to bless them with five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten compliments that encourage their character. We're the same way. For every one look that we take at our sin and our depravity and our inability, we need to take ten looks at Jesus who paid it all, who stood in our place, who took the punishment, who fills us with his spirit and leads us into living a new life. For every one look at your sin, take ten looks at Christ. Another way, by causing them to obsess over past sins that have done damage that can't be undone. By causing them to obsess over past sins that have done damage that can't be undone. So rather than looking forward at the path ahead, you stay stuck looking backwards at the past. Thirdly, by making Christians believe that the troubles they are going through must be punishments. And so Satan just says in here, God's mad at you. He doesn't love you, he's mad, he's disappointed. If you were to see his face, he'd be scowling, not smiling. These are lies from our enemy of accusation. Fourthly and lastly, by making them believe that the inner struggles and thoughts that they have, Christians shouldn't have. So he says to you, your inner voice goes like this, I can't believe you thought that. I can't believe you want that. I can't believe you desire that. If you were a real Christian, you wouldn't think that thought. That is a lie from the pit of hell. Do any of these sound familiar to you this morning? Do you hear them? You need to recognize that Satan is playing you. You need to recognize that he's attacking you. You need to recognize that he's accusing and tempting you. And you need to call and be aware of how he's playing on the world and the flesh to distract us as a church, to distract you as an individual from growth in Christ. Um, if I was to stand in front of a grand piano this morning and open it up and scream a note into it, that note that I screamed would start resonating. That string would start resonating in the piano. That's how Satan speaks into our life. He doesn't create evil within us. He plays on the pre-existing notes within us. He screams into our lives with temptation and accusation and he watches for what vibrates. He watches for what catches and then he harps on that note in our lives and he attacks us. So look into your life this morning. Where is Satan attacking? What is he after? And then look to Jesus. See, I'm not here this morning for anything but to point us to Christ who paid the cost. We've talked about sin. We've talked about the world. This has been a heavy sermon, but what I wanna leave us with this morning is that Christ is the one who overcomes the world. Christ is the one who overcomes our flesh, who overcame his own flesh so that he could go to the cross as a pure, perfect sacrifice. And Christ is the one who overcame Satan. Satan threw everything he had at Jesus on the cross and he thought he had victory, but in reality, it was the sovereignty of God laying down his life for you and me so that we could have a way to the Father. Jesus, at the most seemingly dark moment, was making a way for us to be saved. Look to Jesus this morning. Fix your eyes on Christ. Fight for nearness to him. Fight for intimacy with him. And let's be on guard, church, against the attacks of the enemy. Let us pray. Father, we thank you that you are our champion that you are our victory, that you are the one who makes war on sin, on death, on Satan, and that you already have won it. And so when we come to you by faith, we are made new, given a new nature. Hallelujah. We praise you, Jesus. 
Help us to be aware as a church to not be caught off guard by the attacks of the enemy. It's in Jesus' name, amen.